0: This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Good afternoon. Welcome back for another wonderful week, learning about the Parsha together. I want to thank you, all of you amazing people who are here. I want to thank the amazing staff over at Yeshiva Beth Yehuda and Partners Detroit. And I want to thank uh, those who are here on Zoom And those who are watching this later, listening to this later, whether it be on that amazing, amazing platform, Torah Anytime, it's an app, it's a website, and it's filled with hundreds of thousands of hours of amazing Jewish content, please go on and check it out. Don't trust me. Verify. Find out. Is there really such a website that's filled with thousands, hundreds of thousands of hours of amazing Torah content, you can go to to, uh, Torah.com, TorahAnytime.com, you can find it on the App Store or the Play Store. You can also find me on a podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My brother gave me a a podcast platform, so you can find me now wherever you find podcasts if you are inclined to find podcasts at Living Jewish with Burnham. Okay, this week's Torah portion, guys, we're going, to do, we're going to do the whole entire class on one verse, okay, but we're going to learn a whole lot about ourselves, we are going to learn about how to fend off sorcery, if you have a sneaking suspicion that one of your neighbors is a witch who's putting a hex on you, I'm going to help you out today. Okay, But we're also going to be able to help you out from the evil eye and all other malevolent forces that are, are lurking out there. And there are malevolent forces lurking out there. Um, and we are going to see how one verse can have so many different... I mean, we're, not, we're only going to do maybe five or six explanations of this one verse. There's many, many more. Let's start with a little bit of background. This week's Torah portion starts off with Jacob coming back to his parents' home. He had spent 20 years. He was on the run. He ran away. Esau wanted to kill him. His brother Esau wanted to kill him after he stole the blessings, which, of course, he didn't steal because he had bought the rights to the firstborn many years prior. But Esau, the loser, feels like he's stealing from me. That's always the story. The people who are responsible and do things right They do their thing, they amass their success, and then the people who were irresponsible and did everything wrong end up taking it from them in anger and righteous self-indignation, right? All the people who took on the risky mortgages and the mortgage-backed securities and and all that ended up crashing the market. And by the way, everyone was complicit in that. I've written about this, right? The government was complicit in that and saying we're going to give mortgages to people who don't have... Good credit. The mortgage companies were totally complicit, pushing through mortgage applications that never should have gone through. And the borrowers—if you're borrowing 105 percent on a house that you can't afford—right? People were taking out 105 percent mortgages. You buy a $500,000 house, they give you 525, 25 percent that you should be sorry. 25,000 dollars to start the renovations. Crazy. You're totally irresponsible, especially if only the house that you could afford only costs hundred grand, right? You could afford a $100,000 house, but they're giving you 105% mortgage. I might as well buy a bigger house. It's going to go up in value anyway, right? Everything's going up. Mind you, by the way, in Israel, there was almost no real estate bubble. You know why? Because everyone has to put 30% down on their house to buy a house in Israel. If you're putting 30% down, you're not buying a house that you can't afford because you can't even afford the down payment on it. But what ends up happening, the whole market crashes and people who saved their whole lives and put away money in their retirement funds, they saw all their money evaporating because of people who were being irresponsible. That's the story of Esav. Esav gives away his wealth, gives away his bechorah, gives away his firstborn rights for a bowl of lentil soup. But then later, when Yaakov cashes that check and goes and gets the blessings that belong to the firstborn son, Esav is beside himself with anger and wants to kill Yaakov. For cashing a check that he sold to Yaakov for a bowl of lentil soup. So Yaakov runs away, he spends 20 years by Laban, for 7 years working for Rachel, and then of course it was switched and he got Leah, and then for 7 years working for Rachel, and then for 6 years working to amass his own wealth, he's coming home now, and he sends out messengers and says, let's get the temperature read on Asab, my brother, how's he feeling? Has he kind of gotten over the... Pro- you know, he's been pretty successful over the last 20 years. Maybe he's gotten over his, his you know, anger and enmity towards me. How's he doing? Let's get a temperature read. And they come back. Temperature is hot. We're talking about global warming hot. We're talking about he's coming for you with 400 men, and he wants to kill you. So Yaakov activates a whole plan... Which is the three pronged approach towards war. He tries to appease of He prays, of course, and he prepares his camp for war. Let's see one verse in this week's Torah portion. Chapter, this is Genesis chapter 32, verse 8. Actually, we'll read up to it a little bit again. So, <clears throat> let me just get the water. Thank you so much. None of the water, the Coke Zero. Um, thank you very much for putting it out. There you go. Thank you. I appreciate it. Okay, so Yaakov is preparing. By Ashuvu Yaakov, and the messengers return to Yaakov. Lamar saying, "Banu el el We came to your brother to Esav. The good news is he's coming towards you. You're going to him. He's coming to you. That's the good news." The bad news is, got, and he's got 400 men with him, he's coming to kill you. And here's the verse that we're going to study the entire class today. Vayira Yaakov Ma'od And Yaakov was greatly fearful. He was very afraid. And it pained him. V'yachat shirito And he split the people that were with him, and the flock, and the cattle, and the camels, into, into two camps, saying, if one of our camps gets hit, at least the other one will survive. Which, by the way, indeed has been the story of the Jewish people. Right When the Jews in Europe were getting hit, the Jews in the Arabic countries were safe. All the Sephardic Jewry, the Jews in America... When the Jews in the Arabic countries were getting hit in 1948, and over close to a million of them had to flee for their lives from Aden, Algeria, Tunisia, Morocco, not Morocco, maybe Morocco even, but definitely Syria, Lebanon, Iran, Iraq, Egypt, when they were all running for their lives, 950,000 of them, in the year 1948, the Jews were, by this point, back again safer in Europe. So there's this sort of this story of the children of Jacob being split out across the world. When one gets hit, the other one is safe to make sure the continuity of Jacob remains forever, and the Jewish people has its eternity. However, we're going to focus the entire class, not even on the second part of the verse. We're going to focus the entire class on the first few words of that verse, the first five words: Bayira Yaakov Maod. And Yaakov was very. Fearful, the yates are low, and it caused him pain. Before we get into the pain and the fears, I'd just like to make a blessing, thanking God for this delicious Coke Zero. Baruch atah Adonai Lohanam, okay. Ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> What is this, he was afraid and he was pained? Why the double expression? He was very fearful and he was pained. Isn't pain, isn't being, fear is a kind of pain. It's like, it's an emotional kind of pain. But isn't that already redundant? And extra? And unnecessary? Okay. So we're going to go with a number of different approaches. Let's start with the very first one, and this is, this is the one where you're going to learn how to defeat sorcery and all other bad forces, including Nazis. The Das is a Canaan. Now I'm going to try to give today, I'm going to try to give a little bit of background on some of the commentators that we're discussing the Das Akanum. Who is the Das Akanum? The word Das is the wisdom, the knowledge of the means elders. Elders in the plural. And indeed, the Das Akanum is a collection of commentary writings composed in the France, Germany, Italy, England area. That's kind of a large area there, but sort of mostly you know right up the middle to the left of Europe all the way into uh, England. It was written Start, it was a collection. It's not an actual, just, it's, not one, it's not one person's writings. It's das It's a kingdom. It's the knowledge and the understanding of elders, many elders. So it was a Torah com- commentary compiled by later generations of scholars from the writings of the Franco-German school of the Bali Tosfos, who lived in the 12th and 13th centuries. Okay, so it was a collected writings, a compilation if you will. The Dasa first response to explaining what does it mean when it says and Jacob was very fearful and he was greatly pained. Says the Dasa HaKanim Vayetzer and he was pained. Meitzer Haya Al Shahaya Yare He was pained that he was afraid. Lachashif because Hashem had given him promises that, I'll take care of you. Hashem had, remember the last week, the story with the, the, the dream, with the ladder from the heavens to the earth, and God came to him and said, I'm God, I'll, I'll take care of you. You're going to be okay. So he was afraid, very afraid, when he heard that Asaph is marching on him with 400 men, I mean, that's, a, that's a, a unit that can wipe him out entirely. Like one genocide in a moment that could massacre the whole family. So he was very afraid, but it pained him that he was afraid. Why am I being afraid? God said, I'm going to be okay. So what, you expect him not to be afraid at all? If you hear that 400 men are marching on you? Like what, you expect him not to be afraid of? Can you tell me you wouldn't be afraid? So for starters, Rev. Eli Melech of Leshensk gives a parable to explain it. Who was Rev. Eli Melech of Leshensk? So, here we go. His full name was Eli Melech Weisblum. Did you know that? Rev. Eli Melech Weisblum, who was born in the year 1717 and passed away in the year 1787. He lived exactly 70 years. He was a Rebbe, and one of the great founders, he was very instrumental in the early times of the Hasidic movement. Let's give a little background on the Hasidic movement. The Hasidic movement was started by the Baal Shem Tov, Rebbe Yisrael Baal Shem. It was started in the late 1600s. When he died, he left over one primary disciple. The one primary disciple's name was the Magid of Mezrich. Okay whose name was Rav Dov Ber of Mezrich. The Magad of Mezrich had a number of core, close disciples. They were actually known as the Chevraya Kadisha, the Holy Brotherhood, the Holy Friendship, the Holy Group, the Holy Society. Okay, And <clears throat> he passed on the Hasidic teachings that he received from his rabbi, the Baal Shem Tov, the founder of Hasidism, to a number of people who would end up going out and spreading it. Amongst them was the Noyem Elimelech, Rebbe Elimelech of Lezhensk, okay, who lived in the city of Ljensk in Poland, which I've been to. <laughs> Another one was Revzusha Zusha of Hanapoli. Little fun fact about Rev Zusha of Hanapoli. Guess where he lived? Hanapoli. But that's not the fun fact. The fun fact is that he was brothers with Rebbe Elimelech of Ljensk. And they lived diametrically opposed lives. One of them lived in incredible splendor and wealth, and beautiful pomp, and the other one lived as a total pauper. Both out of choice. Because they both want to display the different ways that one could serve God. You can serve God through poverty, you can serve God through wealth. There's a little fun fact. Next! Rev, the, um, Levi, it's like a Bredichev, another great Hasidic Rabbi, and Rev Schneer Zalman of Liadi, the founder of the Chabad dynasty. okay. So Revelli Melech of Legends gives the following. Can I help you out, Jeff? <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Until he takes his pills. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Jeff and I, by the way, I don't know if you guys know this <laughs> Jeff and I have a long-standing relationship that we, uh, we kibitz with each other pretty uh, intensely and it's really, no, there's never God forbid, any, 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 any real uh, he's one of the few people in the world I can do it with, because I know that he doesn't get offended, and he dishes it back and he, he dishes it hard, and it's, it's cool okay, anyway so Reveille Melech of says the following parable you've got a king And he's doing some renovations on his kitchen, the royal kitchens, right? They're about to have a big party to celebrate his 25th anniversary as king. And he wants to make sure that he's going to have this party. It's going to be a three-week-long celebration. And that kitchen, it's going to be running around the clock for three weeks straight. So before, a good half a year ahead of time in advance... There, you start working on renovating the kitchens, widening the halls, putting in some more industrial, you know, stone ovens, you know, all that kind of stuff. So there's a worker who's installing a stone oven, and the overseer, the foreman, is giving him grief. He's yelling at him, whatever, so he decides, you know what? You want to yell at me? Watch. You know, a stone oven, to get the proper heat dispersal and all that, it should be a perfect arc. Perfect arcs are always good. He decides, you know what? I'm going to go a little bit off. I'm going to make the angle get skewed. It's going to create a little bit of problem. You want to mess with me? You want to yell at me and tell me I'm lazy? I'm not doing my job? You watch. I'm going to do a little bit of sabotage. Right? A little bit of sabotage. I'm going to produce a product that looks like it's coming out of a GM plant in the 70s. You know what I'm saying? People driving their car off the lot, and there's like clanking and noises, and they—they're like half the car is not really finished yet, because the UAW worker is like, whatever, until Honda came along. But you guys know the story. You're from Detroit. So the guy intentionally messes up the product, and he starts building the wall of the oven... Off kilter. But of course the foreman sees it. (laughs) The foreman was probably right in calling this guy a lazy guy. The foreman sees it, and he's like, hey you, Frank, what are you doing over there? Why are you going off angle? And he gives him a nice kick in the back. In those days they could do that. There was no OSHA. (coughs) You go back to work, and I don't want to see you messing up anymore. Okay, okay, boss. Game over. Now, in another part of the castle, the king has ordered, for his 25th anniversary, a brand new crown. And the, the focus of this crown is going to be this insane, beautiful blue diamond, which is so rare, right? A blue diamond, right? All the colored diamonds are much more expensive than the clear, right? So this is a blue diamond, that has been discovered in some mine in India, and it's large and beautiful, and it's going to be the most amazing diamond in the world, literally the most amazing diamond in the world, and the king is going to have it on his crown for his 25th coronation. So, in a workshop, high up in the castle, there's a man who's a master craftsman. Master craftsman! And he's working on the diamond, shaping it with whatever they used in those days, because they didn't have diamond dusted drill bits like we have today. They didn't have the drill part, they may have diamond dusted. I don't know what they, maybe they used diamond, like diamond tools, whatever. He's working on this diamond. By mistake, he gets a little sloppy, and he hits it the wrong way, and, and a fissure opens up in the middle of the diamond. Every night at the end of this, craftsman work, he comes to show it to the person who's in charge of the whole project and when he brings the diamond that night to show what his progress is the person looks at it like, what, what did you do over here? whatever, whatever. <laughs> by mistake I'm sorry by mistake, I'm sorry you have no idea what's going to happen when the king finds out that you took this prized diamond that he spent a fortune getting it was supposed to be the crown you know, of his crown and you, by mistake, you knocked it the wrong way, and you put a fissure right down the middle of it? I don't want to be you when the king gets around. And indeed, when the king finds out about it, the guy messed up the middle of my diamond, throw him in prison for ten years. Now look at this. You have one person who on purpose made the wall of the oven off kilter, even though it's the oven of the king. On purpose he did it. To get back at uh, the foreman. What happens to him? A swift kick in the back. The craftsman who's building the diamond crown. By mistake, he hit it the wrong way and it shattered and opened up a fissure and he's going to be in prison for 10 years? The answer is, yeah. Because when you're working on the diamond, you have the, most, the highest responsibility in the, in the kingdom at that time. You can't mess up. If you're the stock boy, I always say this, if you're a stock boy at Walmart and you mess up when you're accounting for how many cans of peas you put in, so you really put in eight cans of peas and you add it to zero, it looks like you put in 80 cans of peas. No big deal. Green beans, you know? It'll be a little bit less. We thought we had 80 cans of baby corn. It was really only eight. Nobody gets hurt. When you're the CFO of of Walmart and you're making your quarterly report and you write what your profit was for the for the quarter and you add a zero and instead of saying we made 30 billion you say we made 300 billion and you report that to the shareholders and the stock goes up and then it's discovered that um yeah it was really only 30 billion I'm sorry guys yeah like I'm so sorry like I don't know what happened there Sam Bankman-Fried, what's up? Like, I don't know what happened to the $8 billion that people deposited with me. I'm not really sure. There was, like, some kind of accounting error. You belong in prison. Somehow, strangely, Nancy Pelosi bought the stock, right hand. (laughs) Nancy Pelosi's husband has a knack of being an incredible stock trader. (laughs) <laughs> Her, they just this, the, whatever I mean, there's, actually you could, you could really see all the congress people who are uh, trading but recently the Pelosi family was selling a lot of visa stock and no one had any idea why because the credit card companies have been doing pretty well but then literally a few days ago a new act came out in congress that would like give credit card. It, it's very bad for credit card companies and people are like ah ok interesting or as we say in the Yeshivish world interessant. But don't worry. I think the most successful stock trader is a Republican. So we're going to go bash everybody equally today. But it's just weird how you have Congress people who are literally I mean, their, their salary in Congress is like two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year, and they're like they all go in not making that much money, and they all come out mega mega wealthy. It just might 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 be a little bit corrupt, maybe. Says Rav el of Lezhensk, if you were to be afraid when you were facing mortal danger, no problem. But when you're Yaakov Avinu, when you're the highest, you're one of the patriarchs, you are the only patriarch whose entire progeny is going to stay within the fold. All of Yaakov's children stay as the Jewish people. He doesn't lose anybody. Avram loses Ishmael and six other children. Yitzchak loses Asa, they don't all make it. But Yaakov's children, they're all going to make it. Yaakov, for me to be afraid of, of a human being, of a person, it's not appropriate for me. I should have faith in God. Which now brings us to the concept of faith in the place of fear. Okay, guys? Faith in the place of fear. There is a verse in Deuteronomy, chapter 4, Verse 35 hey. Ata Ladas. It has now been clearly demonstrated to you, Kiashem, who ha Elokim. Hashem, He and only he is God. milvado. There is nothing else besides him. There are no other powers, there are no other forces. God is all. Now, there is a concept that the more a person believes this to be true, the less any other force has any power. There are other forces in the world we're going to learn about, but those are all forces that were given their power by God. But when one recognizes God's power in the world, then the only thing that has any power over them is God's power in the world, and not any other forces. So we're going to take it first, so we started with the verse... Now we're going to go into the Talmud, and then we're going to go into a much greater source that's going to talk about this, the, the underworld powers. Let's start with the Gemara and Chulin. Tractate Chulin, page 7b. Ain Od Milvado, the Gemara quotes the verse we just read. There is no other force besides him. Rabbi Hanina said, V'afilu kishafim. Even all the forces of evil, all the forces of sorcery and black magic, they're not effective against God's power. <coughs> Says this, the Gemara a story, Hahi there was a story of a woman who was a sorcerer, a witch. <laughs> now, I don't know a lot about witchcraft. It happens to me, it's funny, because this week, we have a, every week, we have a prophets class on Tuesday night at 7pm. Over here. We're learning Shmuel Beis. Sorry, Shmuel Aleph. We're learning Samuel, the book of Samuel, Samuel 1. We're at the way end when King Saul consults with a sorcerer. Okay? So, it's kind of interesting that we're learning this right now in the same week. So the Gemara says that when you recognize Anod, Movado, there's no power other than God, then there's not even the powers of sorcery. But there was a story. There was a sorcerer. There was a witch who lived in the time of Rabbi Hanina. And she wanted to, I don't, again, I don't know much about sorcery, but there was some sort of act of witchcraft which requires, as one of the ingredients that you put into your big cauldron, earth that this person had recently stepped over. Okay? Yeah. So it's like, you know... Sometimes if you're a criminal, and after you put down a cup, you see somebody going to grab that cup, you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. whoa, whoa, whoa. Well, my fingerprint, huh? Guess what? I always wear stickers on my fingertips. <laughs> so, ladies and gentlemen, this lady, she's coming to get, She wants to get his. she wants to get his footprint, she wants to get his dirt from underneath his feet. Which he knew, if you're going to get the dirt that I, I just recently stepped on, you need it for sorcery pra- you know, practices. So he said to her, Amar lah, go ahead, take it. You want the dirt? No problem. Take it. Lo milsech. It's not going to help. You're not going to be able to perform any, any uh, sorcery on me. Why? Because the verse says there's no power other than God. So you're not going to be effective at all against me. So the Gemara says, wait a second, does that mean that sorcery doesn't work at all? Is that the case? Ask the Gemara, Rabbi But Rabbi Yochanan said a statement, Laman Nikreshamon Kishafim. Why is sorcery in Hebrew called Kishafim? Because they have the ability to disrupt, go against the heavenly entourage, the heavenly decrees, what's supposed to happen from heaven. Sorcery is called keshafim in Hebrew because it's makhishim, pamalya, shalmala. It has the power to disrupt the heavenly flow. So, what is Rabbi Chanina saying? Eh, don't worry, you're. Your witchcraft won't do anything. But we we have a source, Rabbi Yochanan, who says that witchcraft can disrupt the heavenly situation. That's the Gemara, shiny, Rabbi Hanina, Dinafesh, Zichuse. Rabbi Hanina was different because he had a lot of merits, he had a lot of trust in Hashem, he had a lot of faith, and therefore, sorcery could not affect him. Sorcery can affect us, maybe, but not him. He was immune because he built up his immune system by taking a lot of vitamin B, which is b faith in God. As we see, because as soon as someone comes to challenge him, what's his initial response? no <laughs> movado. I don't believe you've got any forces. The only force is God. Okay. Now, how do we understand the whole concept of witchcraft and sorcery? How does it work? So we're going to look in the Nefesh The Nefesh was a book written by Reb Chaim V'laziner, whose name was Reb Chaim Ben Yitzchak of Velozhen, whose last name, which most people don't know, was Ikevitz. Okay? He was born in January 21, 1749. He passed away on June 14th, my son's birthday, 1821 also my brother's birthday. Just putting that out there. Okay. Although the yurt side always goes by the Hebrew, of course. Um, what was famous about Reb Chaim Velazhin? He started the first modern-day type of yeshiva. Okay. He started a yeshiva in Volodzhen, which was known as Yeshiva's Eitz Chaim, which eventually had over 100 students, and it was the first modern-day style yeshiva where people came and studied full-time. Uh, it began with 10 pupils. By the time he passed away, it had over 100. Okay, great. His yeshiva, by the way, lasted for almost 100 years from 1795 until it was shut down by the government in 1892. Okay. He wrote a book called Nefesh Achayim, And the Nefesh Achayim often goes through sort of how things work below the surface. Let's dive a little bit deep into the world of witchcraft, or dark forces, shall we call them. Okay, so we're looking now in what's called Shar Gimel, the third gate Perak Yud chapter twelve. Al Enod This is the context within which the rabbis taught the Pasuk, for God is the only one, Enod Movado, there's nobody else besides him. Amar Ribchanina Rabchanina Seza even sorcery. Kikol in yane hakshafim Nimshach me'akochos hatuma All of the actions of sorcery come from the impure forces of what he calls the merkava tmea, the impure chariot. Cab- we're going kabbalistic, guys. Okay, just just know we're going kabbalistic today. My children keep thinking that I'm learning Kabbalah after I turned 40. I grew a beard, you know. <laughs> I'm not learning Kabbalah, but I'm teaching. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I only learn the stuff that's extraordinarily readily accessible in works like the the Nefesh Chaim from Rav Chaim Volozhin. Rav Chaim Bulajin was not a Kabbalist, but he definitely this idea we're going to talk about right now is definitely on the Kabbalistic side. There is a verse that says, Zeluma Zebar Halokim." This parallel to this, God created, and this concept is that God created the whole world with parallels. Okay, so everything has a, there's parallels. The higher good you can become, the lower bad you can fall. Right? That's why we see so many Jews who have done amazing, amazing things, but also so many Jews have done such rotten, horrible things. Um. There is a concept of of the Merkava. The Merkava is, so to speak, the chariot upon which God rests. Obviously, these are highly Kabbalistic concepts because God is not a physical being. He doesn't have a body. So how does He sit on a chariot? Okay. But we know that there's a chariot. We know that it has different faces. We know that there's different wheels, so to speak, of the chariot that carry it. The wheels of the chariot are Avra, Mitzvah, Yaakov, and David. Okay? No questions on that. Ask me no questions, for I have no answers. However, Rav Chaim as he has referenced in other places too, says, just like there's a holy chariot, God created everything in parallels, there's an unholy chariot. Which gives the ability for evil in the world. Evil being evil forces, evil being human beings making bad choices. Some of them may be more sorceristic, if that's a word. Some of them just being plain evil, like Nazis. And we're going to talk soon about, we'll see how this Ein movado comes into play, even against modern-day evil, which is not necessarily done by cauldrons and witchcraft, but is done by just pure, naked, modern-day evil, which is the Nazi movement, for example. So the Nefesh Achayim says the entire platform for acts of sorcery and acts of pure evil come from the Merkava Hatmeya, the impure chariot. V'hu shahayu leida. These are the powers of sorcery. The, the Torah tells you there's a number of mitzvot in the Torah regarding witchcraft and sorcery to stay away from it and so on and so forth. The Torah wouldn't be telling you about it if it wasn't there. So it's clearly a real thing. All that comes from the impure chariot. The members of the Sanhedrin were experts in the dark arts because they had to know it, to recognize it, to prosecute it, because it's a prohibition of the Torah. Shalya through these negative powers the sorcerers can do all kinds of different activities when they are able to um, take captive these negative forces okay so he says like this what are, what are some of the things they can do they they are able to use the, the wisdom they have relating to different names of impurity, the knowledge and the context of the powers of impurity that they are in there, and they can use them to perform certain acts. And this is all things that they do that will go against the forces of nature that God set up for the world. So we're going to create a hierarchy over here, guys. There are certain forces of nature that God creates in the world. Which means that God creates a world that runs across certain systems. There is a statement in the sages that says, a blade of grass doesn't grow unless there's an angel saying grow. What is an angel? An angel is an emanation from God. An energy from God. So God obviously creates certain forces. But those forces govern the world. God created that whole system... To govern the world and create a certain sense of nature. Sorcery can get up above that level, it can disrupt the nature. Because the Creator, Master of all, determined that these impure forces, forces should have these powers. And he said that they should be higher than the standard forces of nature in the world. Therefore, those who know how to use these forces can use them to change the natural order of the world. Does this mean a witch with a peaked hat flying around on a broomstick? Does this mean a child in Hogwarts pulling out their wand and saying, al-ohorah, al or... not really, it doesn't look like that but again, there there is such a power and again, now we're getting a context for that power where does that power slot in? according to the Nefesh Ha'chaim, it slots in higher than the, the set natural order of the world that God gave it okay So there's a, the Seder of the Kochavim and the Mazalos, there's the, the, the order of the stars and the constellations and the natural order of the world, and Hashem can g- set it up that the powers of negativity can go above those. For every power that Hashem created, Hashem created an ability for it to be, so to speak, overpowered by a higher a higher world so you've got the world of natural order you've got the world of reaching into the negative side the dark side and that has the ability to overcome that and then that's what it means when it says that kishuf, sorcery, witchcraft can overcome the heavenly order what heavenly order? the heavenly order of how the world is supposed to work on its own ok That is what the negative forces can reach. He says very clearly, though. They don't have the power. The negative forces do not have the power to overturn anything that was part of the Holy Chariot. So now we've got an order. guys with me? We've got an order. Bottom world, the natural order of the world based on what God created for the world. Above that is the world of negative forces, the Kokos hatuma, the forces of negativity, the forces of impurity, which come from the impure chariot, and they can override. So a witch, a real witch, not the ones in Harry Potter, but a real witch, a real person who has the right ability to connect with, the negative forces of the world can overturn the natural order of the world. However, they cannot, because you can control anything below you, but they cannot control that which comes from the Merkava Kadosha, that which comes from the Holy Chariot. Because that is indeed higher than that. Therefore, and I'm skipping a lot of the words inside, but I'll read some of the translation, and it's truly the opposite situation. The powers of negativity, when the powers of, of purity are activated, are nullified, are brought down. That's what it means when we say there are no other forces other than God. At the end of the day, God is on top of everything. And when you get to Him, there's no forces. So there are forces that are the natural forces of the world, there are forces of negativity, which can literally control and change the natural forces of the world, then there's the forces of purity on top of them, and at, at the top of everything is God, and there's just nothing there. Nothing that can even touch anywhere near that. And this is what the Talmud was saying. He explains over here, the Nefesh Shachaim says, this woman was trying to get the dirt because she knew there was a way to use an incantation and to use a, using various names and incantations that she could use to affect things in the world if she could get a hold of the dirt that Rabbi Chanina had just walked on. But he said to her, take as much dirt as you want, lady. I'm connected on a higher level. If I was only on the base level of the world, the natural world, you, can, you could do things to me. But that's not where I'm at. I'm at the de milvado level. I'm at the level where I'm at God. I'm holding on to God. You don't have the ability to touch me. Let's make this very, very, very real. So again, do they have the ability to overturn the world? Yes, they do. Do they have the ability to overturn someone who's higher than them? No. Let's make this story very, very, very real. The Brisker Rav, whose name was Rev Yitzchak Zev Halevi, Soloveitchik, was born in 1886, passed away in 1959 in Jerusalem. Now, interestingly, they called him Reb Velvel. And you're thinking, how do you get to Velvel from Rev Yitzchak Zev Halevi? Very good. The answer is, Zev in Hebrew means wolf. Maybe. There you go. <laughs> I'm not surprised. <laughs> they know this guy is the wolf of Huntington Woods. <laughs> not anymore. You in Commerce, where are you at now? Uh, Bloomfield. The wolf of Bloomfield Hills, or <laughs> Bloomfield Township. Anyway... Zev means wolf. Velvel is a diminutive form in Yiddish of wolf. So he was known as Velvel, also also known as the briskerav. A little bit of background. Um, he was born. Let's see. He was born to Chaim Saloveitchik in Volozhin. Remember Volozhin. His grandfather was Rabbi Rafal Shapiro, one of the Rosh yeshivas of Valazhin, the yeshiva that was founded by the Nefesh which we just spoke about before. His family was moved, the family moved to Brisk, or Brest-Litovsk, which was Lithuania sometimes, Russia sometimes, Poland sometimes, you know how these things go. Um, it's almost like, in America, the state is sometimes... Republicans, a red state, sometimes it's a blue state, you know, the, sometimes it's Russia, sometimes it's Lithuania, sometimes it's Ukraine. <coughs> so after the czarist government closed the Valajan Yeshiva in 1892, which we heard about earlier today, Rev Chaim Salvechik moved his family to the city of Brest-Litovsk, or Brisk, and they began their studying there. He fled in the beginning of the Holocaust. Little known fact, ladies and gentlemen, What country had the highest death rate of Jews, the highest percentage of Jews, killed in the Holocaust? Lithuania. Very good. I mean, not very good. Correct. Lithuania, right? If you look at Germany, Germany had very few Jews. Very few German Jews were killed in the Holocaust. Very very few. About 160,000. That's a huge number, of course. Massive. But I'm saying compared to the amount of Jews that originally lived in Germany. But they saw the rise of Hitler. They saw the brown shirts marching in the streets. They got out. Most of them got out. There probably were many. I don't know how much what the population of German Jews was in, let's say, 1930. But by the time the Holocaust started, you know, in 1939, I mean, they started sending people to camps already in 38. But by then, already, almost every Jew in Germany got out. So there was only 160,000 left. The city, the country with the highest amount of Jews killed. The country, the highest amount of number was Poland, but it was about 90%. Lithuania, unfortunately, 97% of the Lithuanian Jews were killed. So, Ravel Soloveitchik, the Briskorov, is trying to run away from the Germans. Now, who was with him when this story takes place? This story is a legendary story, but interestingly, when you look it up, it has different opinions I've seen, it in th- I've seen it myself in three different ways one that he was traveling by himself one that he was traveling with his son and one that he was traveling with two daughters and a son however whatever, whatever, whoever he was traveling with a rabbi the, the, the Nazis whenever they came into a city the first thing they looked for was the rabbiners the rabbis they were looking for the briskarov and he had to travel out and escape because he knew being here would be certain death he decided to take a train. Now, the trains were constantly being patrolled by German SS officers looking for Jews, fleeing. He taught his children in advance to start learning how to focus on the words Ein Od Milvado. There are no powers other than God. And indeed, they start they got to the platform. In the platform, you have Nazi soldiers walking up and down looking for Jews, and here you have this. Rabbinical-looking man with a long beard and his very frightened-looking children. Nothing. At one point during their train journey, and, 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 and the brisk girl was sitting there the entire time just absolutely focused on the fact that there is no other power in the world than God, at one point the concentration broke. And immediately... A Nazi said, What's that rabbi doing there? And he started coming towards him, and he just had to, like, I can't even imagine how hard it must have been, like, to get your focus back. No, 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 ain't Because now the man is actually, the Nazi's coming to you, starting to draw his revolver, and mm, the Briskarov goes back into ain't old blah, 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 and then the Nazi just walked right by. The Nazis, of course, were from the most impure power. And they wielded extraordinary power in the world. However, this is a modern-day story that happened 75 years ago of somebody using this power of saying, I'm going to connect. You, could, you are a Nazi. You're so evil. And you can affect horrible things on the world with your impure powers that you get from your impure Merikava, from your impure chariot. But if I can get above you and I can hold on to anode Milvado and hold on to that level, you can't touch me. By Yira, Yaakov, Mo'od. And Yaakov was very fearful. By Yetzir, Lo, and it bothered him. Why am I being so afraid? I just need to hold on to God, and nothing can touch me. It bothered Yaakov that he was afraid. What does this mean for us? We are not on the level of Yaakov, of Vinu, Jacob, the patriarch, that if we have mortal death facing us down, That we should be angry at ourselves for being afraid. However, if we find ourselves worrying obsessively about things, and especially, importantly, things that are not in our control, if you're worried a lot about the fact that you are not getting enough sleep, good, worry about that, because that's in your your control. You could get more sleep. I'm not talking about not being able to fall asleep. I'm talking about you just end up not getting enough sleep. So get more sleep. You're not getting enough exercise. Get more exercise. Be worried about that. No problem. That's in your hands to control. It's a moral choice. However, if you're concerned about things that are not in your control, it should bother you. I've got to have more faith. I've got to learn to start expressing more. God is in control. That's the trick. Expressing it more. Verbally saying, God's got me. I'm going to be a Baruch Hashem. I'm going to be okay. God's got me. The more we just, I believe because I speak. Why do the Jews always say, "Oh, Baruch Hashem, Baruch Hashem"? You know, Hashem, Hashem. Why do we say that? We're always saying, "God," you know, "God willing." We're going on on, on Friday to the Kiddish. or sorry, on Shabbos to the Kiddush. Are you coming to the Kiddush? God willing, God, God willing this, God willing that. Why we? Why do we say that all the time? What are we? A cult? The answer is what you say is what you begin to believe. If you constantly praise your spouse, and tell, you, tell them how much you appreciate them, you actually start to appreciate them more. If you constantly say that God is in control, you feel that God is in control. I mean, God's always in control. But the more you say it, the more you believe it, the more it becomes your reality. We should be able to look at our own life and say, are there areas of my life that I'm obsessing over? We are a generation that is obsessed with anxiety. And if we know that we are anxiety-ridden in certain areas, we have to start verbalizing more our faith in God. If it's something out of our hands, God is going to take care of it. I put my faith in God. od odmavado. There is nothing other than Him. There are no other forces. I do want to just throw out a couple more answers to this question. While we're at it, and then we'll call it. But we're going to rapid fire now. Okay, you guys ready? This is the lightning round. So the main answer we cover today is Yaakov was bothered by the fact that he was afraid. We should be bothered by the fact that we're afraid when we obsess with anxiety over things that are out of our control. We have to learn to give it over to God. (laughs) HaShlech Hashem Yehavcha. Throw your package on God. (laughs) he'll carry you. Okay? Other answers. The Gor Aryeh the Maharal, says he was afraid that he was going to end up... He was afraid of getting killed but he was pained by the fact that he might end up killing. Who is he going to kill? Maybe he'll kill Esav. Ah, he would be allowed to kill Esav, because if someone's coming to kill you, the Torah says, kill him first. But he was afraid that he would get cursed by his father, who loved Esav, and it would cause his father pain. So, the first, he was afraid that he would get killed. By Yirah, Yaakov, but he was very afraid. By Yetzirah, and he was pained that he might end up killing his brother, and that was very painful to him. Another answer, the Dosses Kingdom gives another answer. For 14 years, he worked for his wives. That was something he had to do. For 6 years, he worked to amass a fortune of wealth, which he came back with now. He said, for, for 6 years, when I could have been coming back home, maybe I'd be poorer, I wouldn't be rich, but I could have come back home poor, and I could have served my father and my mother, and done Kibut of Aim. I didn't do that. My brother Asaph was there the entire time, taking care of my parents, who were elderly that reward is so incredible for what he did. And maybe I'll be held accountable for not coming home and not being there for my parents in their old age. That's what he was afraid of. Um, the Abarbanel, man oh man, the biography of the Abarbanel is fascinating. I was going to go through it today, but I'm actually not going to go through it today because we're in a lightning round. But he just says the fascinating idea also. He says it's okay to be afraid when you go into battle against evil, he says, a warrior, a very strong warrior, is not one who says, the, the enemy I'm facing is not formidable. That's a fool. Right? If you're one of the, Who's a courageous soldier? Are you a courageous soldier if you say, ah, oh, the, the people we're facing, they're, they're weaklings. They're nobodies. No. Because if you think they're nobodies, A, you're probably wrong, and B... You're not sacrificing anything going into battle with them. Of course you're going to beat them. They're a bunch of weaklings. But when you're facing a formidable opponent and you say, I'm still going to go to battle because I'm doing the right thing, that's when you're a brave soldier. Yaakov, he says, according to this final answer, the Barbanel says, he was correct for being afraid. He was facing a formidable opponent, whether it be on a spiritual level, or on a physical level, but he was still going to go to war because that's what God wants of me. And, ladies and gentlemen... That concludes our answer. Most importantly, if you're afraid of something, teach yourself more emuna, more Bitachon. There's so many books that you can learn. Living Emunah is an amazing series to read again and again. You could buy There's like five, six, seven books already out. They are amazing. And read them and learn them and grow in your Emunah. Because when you get to that level of anode milvado, nothing can touch you. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you for being awesome. Have a wonderful week.